as we jump back in right in the same passage we were last week. Last week we focused on the word grace. This week we come to a new word that we're going to focus on in that text. Uh, We're going to just read verses 8 and 9 this morning though. Brief scripture reading for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, we're, we are working through what we're called uh, the solos of Christmas. We're looking at the basics of our faith, the basics of what we believe through re- remembering um, the themes of the Reformation 500 years ago and trying poorly at times, probably connecting it to Christmas. Uh, but turning our eyes on some of the most basic things about the faith of Christianity. So this morning I want to begin this way from a story from my own life. Um, And this may sound familiar to some of you. Um, If you grew up in the church, particularly Presbyterian church or Reformed church, this might sound like your childhood. So this is mine. Um, When I was a kid, I was not allowed to go trick-or-treating ever. Um, I feel like maybe I said this one other time. At one time, one year, my, when I was 14 years old, my parents gave me permission to go. And um, another kid from our homeschool group found out about it. And their parents left a nasty message on my parents' voicemail with great anger and indignation. How could the pastor allow his son to go participate in devil worship? This is why I was not allowed. We were not, it wasn't because there was razor blades and the candy apples. It was because, of course, it was evil to participate in Halloween. Thus, the church I grew up in had the great practice of doing what some of you are familiar with would be called a, the Reformation Party. Where on the night of Halloween, we would celebrate the Reformation. And the rules of the event were this. You could get dressed up, but you could only dress up as two different types, in two different ways. You had to dress up either as a Bible character or as an animal. These were the only two things... That you could dress up as. The setup of the, of the event was your classic kind of church harvest party sort of event. I think we used to have this here at our church. We called it the Luther Party here at King's Chapel. But the setup of the event was you would move from station to station, you know, doing different games and activities and collecting various forms of candy and doing different kind of arts and crafts. But the high point of the evening, the high point of the evening, the final station was when all the kids, we would shuffle into a dark room lit with only a few candles representing the mood, the spiritual mood of the Middle Ages. And suddenly we would hear the sound of thumping. That of a hammer on a door. As some poor dad in the church who had been voluntold by his wife that he would have to play the role in a bad monk's outfit of Martin Luther. And he would come in and he would nail the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And after finishing nailing the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, he would then turn and with a start realize our presence and commence to tell us the story of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. The key point, the high point of that story was this. The gospel presentation is that you kids, you can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. There's no amount of good works that can save you It is only by what? Faith alone can you be saved. And then, of course, we would leave there and we'd go eat and consume copious amounts of candy. That was the story 
of my childhood. I share that, um, that story and that anecdote from my own life to communicate uh, and articulate uh, this, is that when we as evangelicals, as Protestants, when we think of the Reformation, what we think about is faith alone. Or, as they, actually the Reformers understood it, is justification by faith alone. We are studying this Christmas season the five solas, the five great themes of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gracia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus is what we'll look at next week. And then Christmas Eve, we'll look at Soli Deo Gloria. But it is the doctrine of Sola Fide, which I think, even in if you, the most shallow of evangelical churches, what you would rethink about the Reformation, it's this. is that you're saved by faith alone. You're justified by faith alone. Now, the problem is, is that we've become so anti-intellectual and so disconnected from our historical roots about what we believe is that even, and we have a a phobia against big words. And so like this word justification, which is really what this whole sola fide thing is about. You are justified by faith alone. That's the key word justified. We don't even necessarily, I don't think many of us know what it is. So if you were to ask, go to the, the normal church person in America and you go, hey, what is justification? They would go, what? Oh, Justice League. I know Justice League. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, great. I love the Justice League. But if you ask them what justification is, they don't necessarily know. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to articulate what is justification by faith alone. What do we mean by that? What is the scripture talking about and why it's so important? Hopefully, you can have a clear and better understanding of this doctrine this morning. Three points because I don't know why I pathologically need to have three points. Three points, though. The first one essentially functions in an introductory fashion for justification. The second is where we will really will spend 70% of our time this morning. The third will simply kind of be an implication of the doctrine of justification. First, first is this. Here's what we're looking at. Why we need justification. The second thing we'll see is how we receive justification. And the third is when we receive justification. Why do we need it? Why do we need this whole justification thing? What is it? See if I can articulate it this way. The Bible starts this way, with this beautiful existence where man and woman walk with God in right relationship. It is a sweet and accepting relationship. They are loved by him. They experience his presence and his touch and his care and affection. God has given them blessings upon blessings in the garden And then man decides that he's not going to trust God. That instead he's going to trust himself. That he's going to take control of his own life. That he's going to trust only in himself. And that he's going to remove his trust in the word of God and the goodness of God. And what happens? That's what happens in Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 4? Well, as soon as this happens, as soon as we take our trust off of the Lord's, and seeking his approval simply by faith in his love for us, his word in, over us. What happens in Genesis 4? The first murder. A brother kills his brother. And ever since then, it's gone from bad to worse. If you're looking for clues for the horrors of this world, all you have to do is simply open the newspaper each and every day or open your browser, your, your Mac News, and you'll see that we have forgotten God. We have rejected God. And not only that, as the Bible would say in Romans 1 and Romans 2, we have actually made ourselves enemies of God. And the Bible has, te- teach, has taught that that rejection of God is in that we have sinned. 
And we have sinned not against just some kind of other person on the street, but we have sinned against a perfectly just, a perfectly holy God. And thus our sin deserves to have his wrath poured out upon us. That to have to hell for us would be to hear God's condemning voice over us for all of eternity saying, you are separated from me. I want you nowhere near me. And so what we need more than anything else ever since the fall is this. We need reconciliation with God. We need to be made right with God. To be made just with God. To be accepted by God. The greatest need of the human heart ever since the fall is to hear the voice of God declare that you are forgiven and that you are accepted in his sight. That's what you need. And the way we get that reconciliation is through righteousness. How, do you, how are you made right with God? Through righteousness. Now I want you to think of righteousness in this way this morning. That righteousness is a validating performance. That how can I, a sinner, make myself right for God? I need a validating performance. It is a performance that you can look at and you say, look, my performance validates my right to have a relationship with you, God. My performance validates your acceptance of me. Now, here's what I want you to see. Because some of you are here this morning, and you don't, I mean, this whole Christianity thing, you got dragged here, it's Christmas Eve, so you came along with somebody, and so you got dragged here, and you might say, listen, I don't necessarily need to keep God's law, I don't need some sort of performance, but let me help you understand this. We all are longing for a validating performance. Every single one of us. We are all seeking a validating performance. You may not think it's with God. But we can see how hardwired this need is within it. From the moment in which you were born, when you were a little kid, you have been seeking the positive approval, the positive verdict of the world around you. For example, what do little kids do when they want mommy and daddy to watch them? Mommy and daddy, look, look, look what I'm doing. Approve of me. My daughter, she's 18 months old, and this is what she says. Daddy, watch. Watch, daddy, watch. Over and over and over again. Why? Because she wants her daddy's approval. She wants the verdict, the judgment that says you're approved of. Your performance is valid. It is worthy. Scientists at MIT, this is interesting from an article a couple years ago, scientists at MIT have created a vest that you can put on that inflates, kind of like kind of your heart monitor thing when you go to, the, the, to test your blood pressure. It inflates whenever someone in your social media page likes something you said or done. And it mimics, it's called, it's dubbed like a hug, with dashes between like and a, and between a and a hug, like a hug. Here's how Matchable.com describes it. It says this, it inflates so that the wearer can feel the warmth, encouragement, support, or love that we feel when we receive hugs. And to return the hug, the sweater, the, the, the wearer wraps his arms around to deflate the vest on each side with two tabs that you have to point so that you can return the hug. Experience and mimic that feeling. Now, isn't that sweet? Don't you want to add that to your Christmas list? Get that for your whole family. Here's like a hug. Every time I like your social media page, it's a hug from me. Why in the world, why are we creating vests that feel like hugs? Because we long for affirmation. We long for acceptance. Because you are desperately hungry for a positive verdict from the world around you. And we are looking to, to find this verdict through our validating performances. Now, you may get that validating performance from any place, any number of places. It may be big or small. 
There's a great example of this in Chariots of Fire that talks about this and validating performance. There's a guy named, they are one of the two runners that they highlight in that movie called, his name is Harold Abrams, and he's one of the fastest men in the world, and he's training, and he's training, and he's training, and his whole life is centered around training for the Olympics, and he's going to run, and someone's asking, why are you training so hard? And he says this, because when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence, to make myself worthy of my place in this world. He needed a validating performance. I want to know my life is worth something. I want to know I'm acceptable. I want to know my life counts. I want to know I am right in the eyes of others. Listen, is it your appearance? Is it your athleticism? Is it your financial status? Is it your children? Is it writing books? Is it getting published? Is it making money? What is it? What is it? What's your validating performance? Everybody is wrestling and struggling for a righteousness, for a validation, a worth, and acceptability. We're all asking, how can I justify myself? How can I justify myself? We are constantly living in the courtroom of public opinion asking this question, is my performance enough? Am I acceptable? But here's the thing. Every courtroom in this world All those places you seek acceptability, they are merely a shadow. They are smaller courts that reflect and point to the higher courts, which is God himself. That God has hardwired you to have a longing to hear his voice. He has hardwired you to have a longing to hear his verdict of acceptance over you. How will you get it? How will you get that verdict? And the issue of justification is this. How can you, a sinner, be made right, be acceptable, and before a holy and just God? How is that possible? How is that possible? This is an important question. If you frame it in these terms, this is the question. And this is what the reformers understood is that men and women after the Reformation, they lived and died for this truth because they said, my goodness, I think I have the right answer what the Bible is teaching about how I am justified before God. Martin Luther said it this way about the doctrine of justification. He said this, if we lose the biblical doctrine of justification, if that is lost, then all of Christianity is lost with it. If you don't get this, you don't get Christianity. And so here's the question, how do we hear, how do we get to hear as sinners, how in the world do we get to hear the declaration of God over us? You are right in my sight. You are accepted in my sight. One word, well, two words, faith alone. That leads us to our second point and where we want to spend the majority of our time this morning. Okay, how do we receive justification? How we receive justification is by faith alone. This is what the reformers taught, and this is what they were rediscovering. They felt that the church had taught, what the Bible had taught, is that we are saved not by anything else, but by faith and faith alone. So let's look at it two different ways. First, what are we not saved by? What does faith alone not mean? Faith alone means, first, that we are not saved by our work. That should be clear, right? Faith alone means we are not saved by our work. We are, putting all, we are all putting our faith in something, to give us a validating performance. 
We are all putting our, our, our weight of faith in something. We are all putting our faith in some sort of performance, some record of righteousness that validates us before others and before God. But before you can put your faith in the record of Jesus Christ, before you can transfer your faith to him, you have to remove it from the thing you've been putting your faith and trust in. Faith in Jesus requires that you cease putting your faith in yourself. This is called repentance. Reconciliation with God is not a matter of self-justification. You can't do it. We cannot accomplish it. We cannot keep God's law. The Bible makes this clear. Our passage this morning makes it clear. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. The Bible goes on in any number of places in the New Testament. Romans 4, 5 says this. And to the one who does not work, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans four thirteen. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Galatians two sixteen. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times he says it in that very short little couple of verses in Galatians. Three times he says, what won't justify you? The works of the law. It won't work. It is impossible to keep God's law perfectly. Impossible. It is impossible to keep God's law perfectly. And yet, do you understand this? In the most recent studies, over 90% of the people who say, if there is a heaven, I will be able to get there because I'm a good person. Over 90% of people, these are church people who believe this. If you trust yourself to reconcile yourself to God, then you are making a grave, grave error. But not only, understand this, not only can you not keep the law of God, it goes worth, worse. Because some of you, may, you don't care about keeping the law of God. You're like, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe the Bible. What do I care? But understand this. You can't even justify yourself in, by your own standards. You fall short, not even just of God's standards, but of your own standards. Here's a great illustration that has been used by preachers for many years, but it's, it goes like this. That imagine you go to heaven, and God says, I'm going I'm to judge you and, and your law keeping. And you say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. And so he says, okay, here's, here's the deal. Oh, your whole life I have, I have put a microphone. You didn't see it, but your whole life I've put a microphone under you. And so what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, I'm only going to judge you by the ways in which you've judged other people. So I'm, I'm, we're going to throw out the Ten Commandments. We're going to throw out all the stuff it says in the Bible. We're only going to take the things, the, 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 the standard by which you have judged others. That you've said, if you don't do this, you're not living up to the standards. And so we're going, to, we're going to take your standards that you've communicated to other people, and then we're going to judge your life by the very standards you've held other people to, and we'll see how you do then. How many of you would succeed? Listen, if you're being honest at all, you would say, not a day would go by that I actually keep the very standards that I hold other people to, right? I call people not to judge, and yet what am I doing? I judge constantly. I say infidelity is wrong, and yet, well, there was that one time. What are we talking about here? We can't even handle, handle we, can't much, we can't handle God's standards, but we can't even handle our own standards. If you're ever going to find a performance that truly validates, you must remove your faith off of your own performance. It doesn't work. No matter how low you bring the bar, you're going to fall short. So faith alone means we are not saved by our works. Instead, faith alone means we are saved still by a work, just not our own. We are saved by Christ's work. Understand this, somebody has to work. Somebody has to work. 
Somebody has to make the righteousness that you need. Somebody has to create the validating of performance and give it to you to make you acceptable. Faith is faith, and what saving faith is, and what faith alone means, is that faith is transferring your trust from your ability, your goodness, your morality, to Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. That's the great transfer. Here's what I want you to see is the comprehensiveness of Christ's work on your behalf. The comprehensiveness. He's done all that is necessary to make you right before God. Think about it from two different sides. We don't just have a weak performance before God, do we? It's not that you, you kind of, you, you came a little bit short. It's you came a lot short of God's standards. And it's not that you coming short to God's standards is like a, just a little deal. It's an enormous deal. You have sinned against a holy, perfect God. We are not just people who violate God's law sometimes. We have violated all over the place. And we have violated our relationship with him. Which means this. That before we can even think about being acceptable in his sight, we have to think about how we even get back to zero. We're like negative 10,000 of acceptability. It's not that that things are neutral for us and we can't get to a certain standard of morality. It's we can't even get to zero. And the work, what Jesus is doing on the cross, what we often, and what we most often think about what Jesus came to do is we say, Jesus came to die on the cross for me. And that's exactly what he did. And what God did is he put all of our sins, that negative record, your, you don't have a validating performance. You have a performance record that actually says, that says to God, you should slaughter me. Think about it this way. You have a bad resume. If someone comes to, like, I heard this, I was talking to somebody recently, and they said they're, they're, uh, they're interviewing somebody for a job at their company, and they, so they called the references. And the references, they, they call the references about this person, and every single reference was going, do not hire this person. Do not touch them with a 10-foot pole. They are poison in your company. And so he calls this person that was interviewing for the job and, and says, we're not going to hire you. And the person goes, why? And he goes, let me just put it this way. You should start with a new resume. It's not helping you. That's how our resume was. But the beautiful truth of the gospel is this. And what we read last week in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin, sin. In other words, God took all our sins and put them on Jesus, and he took them to the cross. He paid for your bad performance record. Martin Luther, I think, puts it so strikingly and unforgettably this way when he's commentating on Galatians 3, verse 13. He says this, God sent his son into the world and then heaped all the sins of man upon him and said to him, Jesus, you get to be Peter the denier. Jesus, you get to be Paul, the persecutor, and the blasphemer, and the assaulter. David, you get, to, you get to be David, the adulterer, and the sinner who ate the apple in the paradise, and the thief on the cross. All of these sins, again, I'm going to put on you, Jesus. In short, to be the person of all men, the one who has committed all the sins of all of mankind. That's what God did. You see, putting in faith in Jesus means that you trust that God put on him your terrible performance record. He got your resume, which means he got rejection, he got death, he got hell. Hell is this. Hell is to hear the voice of God's condemnation for all of eternity. And that's what we deserve. The faith alone in Jesus that saves comes from the understanding that everything that makes me foul has been given to God in Jesus, and he has paid for it. But 
But our faith, it's, it's comprehensive. It's not just that he takes our bad record. It's not that just in Jesus, he, he atones for our sins. He didn't just clean up your record, like wash it clean. That's, that's not just what happens. It's not now that when you become a Christian, you've accepted Jesus' atonement on your behalf, and now you go, yay, I have a white piece of paper I get to give to the Lord, and now for the rest of my life, I have to make sure this stays really, really clean, because that's how most of us think. That I've got to keep this record clean. But here's, understand this. Jesus didn't simply come to die for your sins. Jesus came also to live for you. And this is the Christmas connection this morning. Jesus did not simply come to die for your sins. If he, all he had to do was die for your sins, then why didn't he just show up in Galilee or in, in, in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and goes, okay, guys, I'm here. Let's get it over with. Why was he born as a baby? Why does he walk upon this earth? Why does he live this life. Why? Because he is not simply paying for your sins. He's also living to create for you a perfect performance record. To walk the road that you would walk. To experience and face the temptations that you would experience. And do and face them perfectly and obey the Father, Father perfectly. And the beautiful truth is this, is not only has he taken your sin and washed your record clean, but then what does he do? That record, that perfect record of performance, those 33 years on the earth of walking and perfectly obeying the law and obeying the Father to the point of going to the cross, he then takes all of his good deeds and puts them on your record. He puts them on your record. And that is the performance record that you need. That is the performance record that makes you acceptable. Jesus' resume is now your resume. I said this before, but it's one of those things that needs to be repeated again. Go back and read the Gospels and read through Jesus' life and read it with this mindset. When Jesus heals the leper, I healed the leper. When Jesus raised that man from the dead, I raised that man from the dead. When Jesus obeys to the point of going to the cross, I obeyed. Because his record is now my record. And so faith alone means we are saved by the work of Christ alone. Everything that is right about Jesus, everything that is obedient about Jesus, everything that is beautiful about Jesus is given to you. And here's what that means for your life. It means you're set free from the longing, the perpetual rat race of creating an acceptable performance. This is the basics of the faith. The basic truth, you have been set free. How can we be free from a condemning conscience when you sin? When you grossly transgress God's laws, when you grossly transgress not just God's commandments, but your own commandments, how can you be free from the searing of your conscience? How can you be free of that? The work of Christ. The work of Christ. When you sin, when you fail, when you're crushed by the guilt that comes in your life from your sinfulness, what you must do, what you must do is time in and time again, take that sin to Jesus and say, this is not mine. You have paid for this. I take the record of Jesus upon me. The Heidelberg Catechism, I think, says it so beautifully in question 60. Teaching young children about the faith, this is what they said. How art thou righteous before God? And here's the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuse me, 
that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, and I have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes, that is, he gives to me the perfect satisfaction, the righteousness and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. The, the quotient, the joy quotient in your life as a Christian can be directly found by how much you understand this and live in reality of this. You see, very religious people, they miss this. They think life is about, yes, I trust God at the beginning and that's nice, he saves me and I have to spend the rest of my life keeping this validating performance up. You know, this is the case for John Wesley in his story. John Wesley came to America as a missionary to the awful, rank, heathenous place known as Georgia. He knew the university was going to be established. He had full theological training. He was orthodox. He came to Georgia to be a missionary there. And he got up every morning at 4 a.m. to read his Bible and pray. I bet you don't do that. He spent time with prisoners and the sick. He did evangelistic work, preaching and teaching, but he left Georgia as a failure. <laughs> Have you known the stories of why he left? It's because he started trying to court a young woman, and she wouldn't marry him, and so he had her excommunicated from the church. <laughs> and so the church said, we don't think that's a good idea. You've got to go home. And so he left, and he's on, a, he's on a ship on the way back to England after this incredible missionary failure, and they're in this great storm, and he is utterly upset, and on this, on this ship, there's a group of Moravian missionaries and Christians, and he's looking at them and going, and they're all calm, and they're singing and praying to the Lord, and he's going, what are you doing? It's time to freak out. Now is the moment to freak out, and they would say this, if the boat goes down, we go up. That's what they kept saying to him. And he said, there, must, there is something in their faith. There's an assurance of the faith that they have in Jesus that I did not have. Wesley said, I left. He went down. He said he left uh, England to convert the world. After that occasion in his diary, he said, but who in the world will convert me? He realized he did not have the assurance. And so when he got back to England, he walked into a church service and where he actually gets saved is he hears Luther's commentary from the book of Galatians. I've, ca- I've quoted from Luther's commentary a few times this morning. And Wesley hears the gospel. And he said his heart was strangely warm. And he realizes this. And he says this in his journal. That all my works and all my labors have been for naught. But Jesus has produced for me all the righteousness I need. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3 that it, all my righteousness, it is rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. It's garbage. It's garbage. It's, and I understand this. I'm going to give you a caveat, though. I want to go a little bit deeper here and a little more precise to help you understand this a little bit better, though, in regards to saving faith. It is important to see that faith, the faith that receives Christ's work, it's, that faith is not a work that saves you. We get this confusion sometimes. And you hear it this way. Faith is not in and of itself a meriting work. Now, if I were to ask, there's a common question that is asked, particularly in evangelistic kind of studies, and it goes like this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to ask you why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? Now, we know, because you're not saved by works, what do we say? Well, we wouldn't say works, although a lot of people say that. Well, because I've been a good person, right? That's the classic answer. But you know what the evangelical Protestant answer is? To why God should let me in is because, the evangelical answer is to say, because I trust in God. 
Who's still doing the acting there? I, 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 because I trust him. Understand this, your faith does not merit you salvation. It does not, the answer, the answer, if it does not begin with a J and when with an Isus, it is the wrong answer. If it begins with an I, it's definitely a wrong answer. It is vital to see this, that justification for Martin Luther and for the Reformers, for Calvin and others, is ultimately and finally not grounded on your faith. Rather, faith is the means by which one lays a hold of that which does save you, which is the righteousness of Christ. Faith alone justifies because faith brings us the spirit gained by the merits of Christ. Faith saves because it takes hold of Christ and believes that my sin and death are damned and abolished in the sin and death of Christ Jesus. Faith saves then because it unites believers to the one who does save, which is Christ. Here's the theological understanding. Say it like this. Faith is the instrument of salvation, not the cause of salvation. Faith is the instrument of salvation, not the cause of salvation. The foundational and formal cause, as we see in Ephesians 2, is what? Grace. The grace of God found in the work of Christ Jesus. What am I talking about? Let me see if I can explain it this way. About, and when we speak about causality, we speak about what causes things at different levels. This is getting a little philosophical. For example, I might ask, what caused the fine music coming from the piano this morning? Now, you could, say, you could say the piano, and that would be correct. The piano is, was there. It was making the fine music. But I could also say that Ed Hogan was the cause of the music. And when I say that, I'm getting closer to the ultimate cause of the truth here, aren't I? Did the keyboard make the music or did Ed make the music? Both, but the ultimate cause was Ed. I could say either and be accurate, but if we want to be precise, we should say it as Paul does, which is grace. Grace is how we are saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says it this way, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. The this that it refers to is the faith. And what do you say? Even this is a gift of God. That the, what, what saves you is the grace of God gifting you in his grace the faith that connects you to the work of Christ Jesus. Faith is a gift given by the grace of God. You didn't come up with it. You didn't conjure it up. He gave it to you. I think J.I. Packer says it well in his book, Knowing God. He says this, Our faith, which from man's point of view is the means of salvation, is from God's point of view part of salvation. Do you hear that? Our faith, which from man's point of view is the means of salvation, because God says you shall trust me, is but from God's point of view, part of salvation, and is as directly and completely God's gift to us as is the pardon of peace, peace of which faith lays hold. So then, if you believe in Jesus today, it is not because of anything good in yourself. It is not because you are smarter, sharper, more sensitive to the Spirit, more open-minded or any such thing. You believe because God has given you the great gift of faith. That's why you believe. And so let me say this in kind of a key definition this morning. Faith, faith alone means this, that faith is the only God-given instrument by which we receive God's declaration of pardon and righteousness won for us in Christ Jesus. Faith alone means that it is the only God-given instrument by which we receive God's declaration of pardon and righteousness won for us by Christ Jesus. That's what faith alone means. Do you understand faith to be that? that it's of nothing you have done, 
It's utterly by the grace of God. Now, there's an implication here for us, for your life today. This is the third point, when we receive justification. And when you receive justification was the theological fight around the Reformation. The medieval Roman Catholic Church, bear with me for just a few more minutes. The, Roman, the medieval Roman Catholic position on justification was this. It was articulated by one of the most famous names in Roman Catholicism, which is a guy named um, Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas envisioned justification as being this, that justification happens when there is a movement or a change, a state of right, unrighteousness to a state of righteousness. In other words, their belief, the Roman Catholic understanding of righteousness or justification was this, is that by faith you begin to trust God, and by God's grace, he enables you to start obeying him. But at the end of your life, after a life of obedience, at the end, when you go to God in judgment, it is there that he justifies you. It is there that you receive the declaration over you that says, you are acceptable in my sight. In other words, what Aquinas would say, would argue, is that justification involved a gradual change from unrighteousness to becoming righteous. At the end of that gradual change, you would be declared justified. So, the Reformed position, though, said, no, that there's something wrong with this. They said that justification is a declaration. The Reformed position was that justification was not something that one worked towards and thus merited, but one by changing oneself by the grace of God from unrighteousness to righteousness, but that the initial grace of God includes a declaration over us that you are right before God. It means this. The Reformers use the language that justification is legal. It's God in the courtroom saying, Slamming the gavel down and saying, you are accepted in my sight at the beginning of the Christian walk, not at the end. That's a big deal. That in order to bridge the gap between a perfectly holy God and a sinful man, what God did was send for us Jesus to give us his righteousness. And when he says, you have Jesus' record on you, you are saved and accepted from that moment on. Let's see if I can illustrate it this way. And by using the terminology of adoption, and the legal act that goes on there. My wife and I, a couple years ago, adopted a little boy named Drew. And we adopted him. Uh, let me illustrate it by using, kind of showing the Roman Catholic position, the Reformed position in regards to adoption. The Roman Catholic position would play out this way in regards to adoption. That Drew would come into our home. We would provide for him. We would give him the grace of taking care of his needs. And over time, he would take on henliness. In other words, he would change in his personality and his behavior and his habits and the lifestyle and become more like a Henley. And at some point, he would become fully Henleyized in all his Henley righteousness. And then at that point, we would then declare him to be our child's. In other words, declare him legally to be accepted in our sight as our son. That's how the Roman Catholic position would work out. The Reformed position worked out this way in regards to adoption. That Drew, at the beginning of his time with us, was declared before a judge, the gavel rang out, he is declared to be my son. And from the beginning of his time in our house, he said, I say, you're a Hindley, you are my son, you are my child, and so you live like this. And so he begins and he lives the rest of his life by saying, knowing who his identity is as a Hindley. He's declared the beginning of his time in our house, not at the end, not once he's earned it and had a performance that justifies himself before us as our son, but he gets the declaration of sonship at the beginning. Understand the subtle distinction between this, because I think most of us actually have the first view, that we think that God's verdict over me is not based upon, is based on the works that I do by his grace. 
that we think that God allows me, helps me to do all these good works, and that one day I'm going to stand before God in judgment, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are now accepted in my sight. But do you understand the insecurity of that position? That to spend the rest of your life going, okay, am I a good enough son? Am I closer? Am I getting there? It would be like my son Drew coming to me, and every time he gets a spanking, every time he gets in trouble, is to go, oh no, I'm moving away from henliness and moving towards something else. I'm going to lose my sonship, the possibility of my sonship, but that's not what God says to us. In the Bible, God says to us in the Bible that when you come to Christ by faith, you are declared in that moment to be righteous in God's sight, to be his son and daughter. You're accepted in God's sight today, right now. You're not waiting for it. That means you get to wake up every morning of your life and you get to hear the voice of God like Adam and Eve got to hear in walking with him in the garden. It says, you're accepted. I want you in my presence. I long to know you and to be with you. Do you have that experience? Or do you live your whole life coming to the end of the day and go, I don't know, did I live up to what it takes to be a son of God? A daughter of God? Martin Luther dealt with this and with one of his mentors, or one of the people he mentored, a guy named Melanchthon. Melanchthon had a very tender, sensitive spirit and had kind of this, eh, he was kind of spineless and had some navel-gazing tendencies. And he wrote this at one point while Luther was in his Wartburg castle translating. Melanchthon had one of these kind of attacks of timidity and worry and wasn't sure if he was saved. And he wrote this. He wrote Luther and said, I woke up this morning wondering if I trusted Christ enough. Luther received these letters from Melanchthon rather regularly. And so he finally wanted to put a stop to this. And so he could, Luther decided, as he was apt to do, he was going to use some hyperbolic language on Melanchthon. And so he wrote Melanchthon back this way. He said, Melanchthon, go sin bravely. Then go to the cross and bravely confess it. The whole gospel is outside of us. What's he saying there? Now, listen, I'm not going to encourage you to sin bravely. But what Luther is saying there, I think at the heart of what he's trying to communicate there, and what I know I'm trying to communicate to you is this. If you sin, and perhaps you sin brazenly in the past week, perhaps you sin brazenly like you, this morning, you must but you, not just you must, but you may. You have the privilege to just as boldly as you sin today, you can boldly enter the presence of God and confess that sin and know that you will receive acceptance. That's what Luther's trying to communicate to Melanchthon. You know what kills your relationship with God? It actually kills all relationships. Insecurity kills relationships. It is the enemy to intimacy in relationships. Have you ever had this experience? Of knowing you're like, man, that person at church, I don't know that they like me. Do you, are you like, man, I, I just want to cuddle up against them. I want to be in their community group. That's the person I want to share my deepest and darkest secrets with. Do you want to be close to them? Do you want to have an intimate relationship with them? No, you want to run from them. Because you feel insecure in their presence because you feel like they're, they're always, there's something wrong with me in their sight. This is how we do, this is why we have no intimacy with God. Is your perspective, is you have this perspective that, man, I think God's so angry at me. I'm not justified. I'm not accepted in his sight. You cannot experience intimacy in your relationship with God when you're constantly wondering whether he's accepted you or not. But the truth of the justification, the fact that God's declaration is already over you right now, means that you can have intimacy with him today. You can go into his presence, and you, cannot, you don't have to wonder whether, whether there's still a verdict out there waiting for you, in which God's going to go, I gotcha. That's not how it works. So, brothers and sisters, you cannot enjoy a sweet relationship with God 
until you cannot enjoy his unhindered embrace until you've understand this truth. Until you've understand this truth. The truth of the gospel is this, is God accepts you and it's not just legal, it is relational and he longs to embrace you and to have an intimate relationship with you and that is yours through the work of Christ Jesus. I hope you'll accept it. Let's pray.